Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Praise the Lord. It is a, a great honor always to be here in Prescott and to be a part of what God is doing, and uh, the, especially this invitation and this forum. And so we were here for a conference, but this is my second time being in. I'm still not used to this. I feel like I've been playing on a little league field, and I've come to Yankee Stadium. Amen. And uh, this is quite a venue, and I uh, really do appreciate all the men who've made the effort uh, to be here. Uh, Judges chapter 7, we'll go there in the Word of God this evening, Judges and chapter 7. Last year, at our Bible conference in October, uh, uh, Pastor Roland Pérez gave me a book to read. He said, Pastor, you need to read this book. I didn't even have to look at the book, and I knew it would be about the Marines, because everything Roland gives me is about the Marines. By the way, we, put on, we honor all, all the men here that served here on Veterans Day, and we appreciate you this <laughs> evening. So this story, this book is called On Desperate Ground. If you have not read that and you're a reader, particularly of American war history, you need to read this book. And it is the story of the American Marines at the Chosen Reservoir in North Korea. So just to uh, get you back uh, uh, on uh, on, on the right ground here, let me quickly remember that uh, the North Koreans, the communist North, uh, did a surprise attack on the South, blew right past Seoul, went all the way down to the bottom of uh, Korea, uh, catching the Americans by surprise. And uh, Douglas MacArthur had a brilliant strategy of landing Marines at a place called Incheon about halfway through and cutting off the North Korean, the communist soldiers, and essentially ending the war. The North Koreans were streaming north. Everything was fine. They could have stopped right there. But MacArthur, being a bit of an arrogant, prideful man, uh, had an idea. And then he began to say, you know what, let's just go north. Let's send our Marines um, and our army. Let's head north. We'll go right up to the Chinese border, and we will secure... Uh, all of Korea, he said this was a foolproof plan. Um, uh, they said, isn't there danger of China getting involved? And they would say, no, China won't do that. Um, and so he ordered um, 15,000 Marines to head north into the mountains of North Korea. By the way, uh, they are some of the coldest places on earth. And this was going on in October and November. And he is sending these men up there, and as he's sending these 15,000 Marines into the mountains, what he does not know is that he has bad intelligence. In fact, Mao Zedong has sent 120,000 Chinese soldiers to the south. They don't know that. 
They're moving forward. They're told that there's going to be a few, uh, you know, mop-up things. They're not going to have many problems. Uh, they don't realize that they're almost outnumbered 10 to 1. So we move towards November, um, and uh, the uh, Marines are digging in, and it's now reaching 20 below zero. One night, the Marines are digging in, and as they're digging in, they have their forward operators, their picket line. Um, these men are trying to dig foxholes in frozen ground. Um, they're free freezing, and as they're there, uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, the uh, lights begin to burst, um, and the sky lights up, and they look, and they see literally thousands of Chinese soldiers coming at them, uh, and a firefight um, took place in a battle that would last 17 days. Let me just tell you one story of a man by the name of Hector Caffaretta. He was a, a uh, young Marine. He is part of that forward uh, picket. Uh, and uh, when uh, the battle begins to break out, um, he begins to uh, uh, fight. Um, no sooner as they begin, they begin, the Chinese begin to storm them, uh, killing some of the Marines with them, wounding others to the point where he was the only one standing, the only other man with him had been blinded. And this man stood by Caffereta all night long, uh, and he had the ability, to, even though he was blind, to reload uh, his rifle while he fired until there were no more bullets, and then he would hand him a loaded rifle. Uh, and they did that all night long. Um, and while he was doing that, uh, they were throwing grenades, and he was literally batting away grenades with his gun. Finally, um, a grenade gets past him. He reaches down, uh, and as he's throwing it, it explodes, blowing off part of his hand. He continues to fire. Uh, his blind mate continues to reload his M1, um, and they fire, and they fire, and they fire, and finally he gets shot. He continues to fire. He gets shot a second time. By the end of the night, he held off two regiments of Chinese soldiers, he destroyed an entire platoon, and by the way, he did it in 20 below zero weather, and he was caught by surprise. He did it with no boots or coat. He had suffered frostbite. This man was an amazing, amazing Marine. And that's only one story of many. And so finally, they were able to march out of the Chosen Reservoir, and forever, the Marines who survived became known as the Frozen Chosen. I preached this in our Bible conference on Monday night, and Wade Schultz, a Marine, said that when you're going through Marine boot camp, all you hear about is the Frozen Chosen. These men are legends because of what they faced and what they accomplished was absolutely amazing. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two fourteen, for many are called, but few are chosen. I want to preach a sermon this evening called The Chosen. And I want you to look with me in Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. As Israel claimed glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. 
Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Father, I ask you to help us tonight. God, I ask you to choose us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you, first of all, about the chosen. So here we are reading about uh, one of the most effective fighting forces in history. A band of 300 men are able to engage in and defeat a median army that is estimated to have been at least 65,000 men. The Bible says they were like a swarm of locusts. By doing this, they broke through a generation of bondage. They established a dominion that would last for 40 years, um, and the Bible gives us some insight into these 300 men. Now, this is absolutely a miracle, but how many know sometimes when we read the Bible and we read miracles like this, we simply say, oh, wow, uh, what a testimony to the power of God. And I agree this evening that God using 300 men to defeat an army of 65,000 is a testimony to the power of God, but I don't believe that's the whole story. What this really is, is a testimony of what God can do when he finds committed people. It is a story of the power of God when men are committed. This is the testimony of commitment, and this is what the church is supposed to be. We are to be the company of the committed. And I believe that in America, we have to remind ourselves uh, of this because commitment is vanishing from the American church. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, uh, but they have lessened their commitment. We all know about the disappearing church services. It's hard to find a church uh, in our cities uh, that still have Sunday night and Wednesday night church services. The reason why is because nobody would come. They can draw 5,000 on Sunday morning, but they'd be lucky to get 100 on Sunday night because people aren't committed. You and I are living in the day where uh, if you challenge people to commitment, you're, pr- you're pressuring them. You're, 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 uh, you're judging them. You're making them feel uncomfortable. Now think about it. This is the same world that wants you to be committed to your keto diet. They want you to be committed to the gym. They want you to be committed to climate change. But if your church preaches commitment, you're a cult. You're dangerous. And yet this is unhealthy and this is imbalanced. Now remember, our aim as churches is not to be big. Our aim is to be powerful. Our aim is not to have thousands of people. I I want to see thousands saved uh, and discipled. But beloved, the real issue tonight uh, in this story was not a lot of people. It was a powerful people. It is the story of commitment. um, And here's the truth tonight, gentlemen. God can do more with 300 committed people than he can do with 5,000 people who have no commitment. 
that that is the principle of the word of God. All through the Bible, we know about Abraham and the 318 men that were born in his house that was able to defeat a, a much larger force. We know that Jonathan and his armor bearer, who engaged a Philistine garrison and turned an entire battle uh, based on their commitment. It is Jesus and the 12 disciples. Um, and I challenge any man here to come and tell me about a great victory wrought by an uncommitted people. Show me anywhere in the annals of war uh, or revival where uh, there was a miracle or something powerful happened among a group, a group of men who weren't committed. You know, one of the great battle victories of the uh, Revolutionary War was the Battle of Trenton. You know, in the Revolutionary War, there weren't too many victories. But one of them is the great story that on Christmas night, um, General George Washington um, crossed the Delaware River and Icy River um, and surprised uh, the Hessian soldiers, the British uh, fort on the other side uh, of the river. Um, and it was Christmas night. Um, these men were celebrating. They were drinking. Uh, and the Americans came upon them and actually uh, won that battle quite easily. But the reason why they won that battle was simply the lesson of commitment. Washington's men on Christmas night were willing to cross an icy river uh, to fight a battle. Uh, the Hessians were German mercenaries uh, who had no real passion uh, or ideology. They were just getting paid. Um, and uh, they, they're not going to sacrifice or give their lives. Uh, because the truth is commitment uh, will always beat uncommitment. The truth is tonight God chooses a committed and here we have our text this evening, 32,000 men. Remember the story Gideon raises up. Uh, he begins to understand God is going to use him to deliver the people from uh, the iron hand of Midian. And he puts out a call. And when he puts out a call, 32,000 men answer the call. It'd be like if we were to preach a sermon at the end of a Bible conference. You're here, and God is the, and. and 32,000 men come forward and say, I answer the call. I agree with the, with the mission. I see the possibility. You're right, uh, Gideon. I agree with you. Uh, they saw the video. Uh, they heard the song, uh, Tell Them. Uh, and, uh, and they're coming forward. Uh, and, 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 and the trouble is that many men, it's enough only to be called. I've been saved 40 years. I want to tell you, I can't count how many times I've been in revival meetings where brothers stand up. The Lord's called you to preach. I can name three backsliders in my church that have gotten more words if they're called than everybody else. And you know what's really troubling is when somebody gets that, they walk around, walk away from that with like it's a pat on the back. That somehow that the very idea that God has called them uh, makes them feel sometimes superior. Other men are there and they, they never get uh, a word from an evangelist if they're called. They, they feel they're called, but they never get that confirmation. Uh, and there's a, a Joe Carnal over there. And that's the fifth time someone's told him he's called. Well, the truth was these men all answered the call. Every one of them heard the issue. Let me tell you something tonight. The issue is not are you called, but will he choose you? It's not a, are you called, but the, the, the issue here is choice. 
God said 32,000 men have responded. But the issue is I don't want all 32,000. It is quite possible to be called and even say I answer the call. Our question this evening is will God choose us? Where do committed people come from? Two things the Bible tells us. Number one, committed committed people must overcome fear. Verse three, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned. Just simply, if you're afraid, you can leave them. And 22,000 people leave them because they do not want to be committed. You know, I always wonder, I'm not a Bible numerologist. I'm not one of those people that, you know, every number has a hidden meaning. You want to lose your mind, uh, uh, become a Bible numerologist. However, I do wonder in this story if the idea that 22,000 or about two thirds will walk away because they're afraid, if that really is true about society in general. That uh, doesn't matter what it is, in the end, you will find about two out of every three people will back off give, if you give them a chance. You know, um, there are people that fear commitment. I have no doubt in this room right now, there are men here, you're afraid just to make a commitment. They can never pin you down. Let me take it a little bit further. They say that this is a major problem with millennials. People who have grown up, come of age in this millennium, uh, that one of the problems that they have is they fear commitment. They don't want to just simply go all in. They don't want to declare themselves. They don't want to say, you know what, I'm called the preacher. This is my life. Uh, And they're always hedging their bets. One article I read I thought was interesting. It says that millennials are worse off than any other demographic in America financially. They're the ones, they're not doing well, and their prospects aren't well. But what was interesting, the article said, it was not because of, uh, of, uh, you know, the housing crisis of 2008 or any other economic factor. They said the main reason why is because they won't commit. They won't just go down a road and stay down that road. There's this fear of commitment in them. uh, And just like in this story, uh, here's this mission. uh, Here's Gideon. uh, Here's all that God wants to do. uh, And the only thing preventing them from being a part of it is fear. And the Bible says they walk away. But that's not the only issue. Number two, committed people exercise personal discipline. 10,000 men stood there and said, I'm not afraid. I answered the call. I'm not afraid. They're not dumb. They know uh, they're far outnumbered. These men have courage. These men have a quality of boldness in their life. But even then, that's still, God says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not ready yet. And so we introduced the thirst test. So what is suggested here is that they mustered these men um, and they marched them um, and they worked with these men. And apparently they were very, very thirsty. And finally they came to some water. And then God says, all right, what I want you to do is I want you to release these men to drink. But I want you to pay attention. And the Bible says when they were given permission to drink, 10,000 men 
ran towards the water, and 9,700 of them stuck their head in the water uh, and just started drinking the water. 300 of these men came down, uh, scooped the water out, and drank it, uh, but they held on to some self-control. They remembered this is war, that they cannot lose themselves in their appetites. That they had to exercise some personal restraint. And God had said, I want you to watch. Um, and only the ones uh, who withhold back, exercise self-control. These are the guys they're going to pick. Um, those 9,700 bold uh, guys that wear t-shirts that say no fear uh, and all, all that. You know, Send them home. Because just because you're willing doesn't mean you, God chooses you. He chooses men with self-control. You know what's really interesting is that they didn't tell them. Gideon didn't say, okay, now listen here. I'm going to release you guys to get some water, but I want you to exercise self-control. Don't go crazy. Uh, uh, you know, he didn't tell them. Let me tell you something about life's test. You don't know when you're being tested. Nobody announces to us and says, hey, there's a test coming. It was just a moment where you're thirsty, you haven't had anything, and you just, you just I'm just going to go for it this time. I'm going to indulge my lust. I'm just going to go for it, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lose my temper. I'm going to slap my wife around. Proverbs 23, 2. Put a knife to your throat if you be a man given appetite. Because I want to tell you, God won't choose you. You can believe in the mission. You can be somebody that says, I've answered the call. I'm not afraid. But God can't choose you. And I, I put this sermon together originally for our Bible conference. Because every conference, I have guys come to me. And, Pastor, uh, we're willing. We're ready. You and, and, and they say all of that. But it's like, but you, where's your self-control? You know, if you're going to say yes to the call of God, you're going to have to learn to say no to a lot of other things. The problem is you have men that say yes to God, but they're saying yes to everything else. At some point, you've got to rein it in, brother. I want to talk to you then, secondly, about the glory of consecration. We know that God blesses whatever is committed to him. Here's a basic Bible truth. When God raised up the tabernacle and the priesthood, he consecrated them. They were mine. The Bible word sanctify, dedicated, free from defilement, and very importantly, not shared. If you were a priest, you were going to be a priest. You weren't going to be a priest in something else. Those pieces of furniture, that table of showbread, no, you can't fold it up and take it to your house on Thanksgiving because you have some extra relatives coming. In other words, uh, every piece of the tabernacle was totally committed, uh, and the Bible says every piece, uh, including the people, had to be uh, lathered up in anointing oil. God's blessing and favor and help and all of that was, was available, but it was only available to that which was consecrated to him. 
And the promise was, if something is committed to me, I will bless it. If something is sold out to me, I will anoint it. I had a years and many years ago, we had a bit of an uh, a issue in our church. We had our concert seat going, and, and then I got word that some of the young people that were singing in our concert scene were going down to the Applebee's there, and they had like an open night, uh, and they were performing at Applebee's, uh, and I had to put my foot down and say, either you're going to serve uh, and consecrate your musical gifts in our concert scene uh, uh, alone, or I'm not going to use you. You go play for Applebee's. Why? Because uh, uh, something consecrated to God is unshared. I'm going to say something to all the men here. You might be a man here with problems. You may have little, uh, a little education and that's all. You might be here and say, Pastor, I don't have any talent. Or I'm not that smart. Or I don't have this dynamic personality. There may be a lot of things you don't have. But I'm telling you, there's one thing all of us can have if we want, and that's commitment. And in the end, God says, I will use the committed before I'll use the talented. In the end, God says, I can get more out of a committed man than a smart man that's not committed. And here's the reality. When you and I are committed, God can make us bigger than we are. My favorite verses in the Bible is Joshua 3, 7. This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. Here's a word spoken to Joshua. And what I think is so fascinating about this verse is that Joshua never changed. It wasn't as if from one day to the next, all of a sudden Joshua became the superhero It had really nothing to do with Joshua. It had to do with how God was able to take his man and make him bigger than he was. What is up, Sermon Podcast listeners? This is Pastor Adam from the Virginia Beach Potter's House. Wanted to say thank you again for listening to this podcast. We hope that you have been enjoying the new daily podcast format. We have been doing our best to post a daily sermon, uh, either from our church or from around the fellowship. We want to ask a couple of favors of you, if you don't mind. First of all, if you are listening to this, make sure that you are subscribed. There's a lot of people who are listening to these and navigating to them uh, every single day. Uh, But it would be better for you and a whole lot better for us if you make sure that you are subscribed so that you get daily sermons delivered directly to your phone or your computer. Uh, The next thing I want to ask you to do is make sure that you leave us a review. We want to ask you, if you're enjoying the daily podcast, fellowship sermons from around the world, please, please go and uh, give us a rating, give us a five stars. Uh, And if you enjoy this, we want to ask you to please share this. No doubt there's people in your church that would enjoy listening to a daily sermon from around the fellowship. The third big thing I want to ask you to do is I want to talk to the sound booth guy in your church. And I believe that there are some treasure trove sermons out there. We've built a platform that uh, I believe 
we could use for the kingdom. And no doubt that there are some of you, you know somebody who knows somebody who's got about 10,000 sermons in the sound booth that they've been sitting on. Or, or maybe you've got a sermon that you think uh, would be great to share on this sermon podcast. We want to hear from you. We want to we get our hands on those, uh, on those sermons so that we can publish them and we can get them out to the rest of our fellowship. So those are my big three requests. Uh, we want to say thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Thanks a lot, guys. The God to serve his purposes can take somebody and give them an influence and an impact way beyond themselves. It wasn't that somehow Joshua became big. God magnified something that was small. I was thinking about this. Let me tell you a little story. When Yolanda and I went to Pioneer in Houston, Texas, back in the mid-80s, and Houston had, the, at that time, the biggest church in America, the Second Baptist Church, and they had a lot of things going on. And one of the happening churches was on the north side of, of Houston. It was called Lakewood Church, and it was pastored by a man named John Osteen. John Osteen was a real preacher. He ministered. I wasn't in Houston very long before I began to encounter people from his church, and there was a degree of evangelism in John Osteen, uh, unlike his son. And, uh, you know, he had a, quite a, a thing going. And so the second weekend we were open, I was showing the, the uh, prophecy movies to open the church. A family came in that had gotten saved at Osteen's church. And they lived on our side of town, and they came in uh, that Sunday night. And God bless them. They locked into our church immediately and never missed another service. And God was really helping them. And uh, about a year later, I took them to a Tucson Bible conference. Here they are. They have been going to Osteen's church. On a, it's about 20 miles away on the north side of Houston. At that time, John Osteen probably had an attendance of around 7,000 people. I take them to a Tucson conference. This is in the 80s. And probably there were about maybe eight or 900 people there. And I'll never forget one night this brother from Houston came to me and said, I have never been in a building with so many people worshiping God. He was in absolute awe as he was in this conference of eight or 900 people. And the first thing that came to my mind is you were going to a church of 7,000 people. Almost 10 times. But there was something about that smaller group of devoted people that God magnified. I want to tell you tonight, the glory of consecration is when you and I serve him and when God can find committed people. I understand in this uh, setting, in this discipleship, there are some pioneer churches, some smaller churches here. There are some men you brought, three or four men with you in your church, and sometimes you can get a little intimidated, and, you know, we're not big, and, and I'm going to, let me say it to you again, God can do more uh, with a handful of committed men uh, than a large group of uncommitted men. And so let's follow the miracle through, because the Bible tells us uh, that there was a strategy to win this great battle. And it all, again, speaks to the power of commitment. The first thing uh, is that each of these 300 men were given trumpets. They all had trumpets. um, And each man was given instructions that there was a point where he was going to blow that trumpet. Now, the strategy was pretty simple. 
300 men blowing trumpets is going to have an impressive sound in the valley. Gideon's men were up on a little hill. The Midianites were in a valley. And they were going to blow their trumpet. And the sound of that trumpet was going to ring through that valley. And it was going to give the perception that they were many more than they're actually were. But there's another lesson here. Uh, uh, Isaiah 58 verse 1, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. I want to tell you something this evening. The hope of our fellowship in the future is that we still have people in our churches who witness. People that blow their trumpet personally. Amen. I am all for Big mega outreaches. We have our share of them in San Antonio. I am all for uh, the large event. But I want to tell you, uh, at least uh, as far as I'm concerned, the most effective method uh, of growing a church uh, is when the people in that church uh, walk out those doors and tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Where there are people that still blow the trumpet. I'm afraid if we're not careful, we'll get to a point uh, where 20% of our church has a trumpet. 80%, 80%, no, you know, you, how many know you can go to an outreach and never outreach? You can stand there, watch a movie, uh, talk to the fellas, uh, the brother gets up to preach, uh, and, uh, you know, other people, uh, you know, they are moving equipment, and I was on outreach. There's something very, very powerful when people have a trumpet. When there is a commitment to personal evangelism. And I was thinking about it. When I got saved, here's the Tucson church at the time. You know, they probably are 200 people at the, at the church. But they're everywhere. Everywhere I went, they were there. I went to a Santana concert, and there they were outside the concert preaching. I went to a Bob Dylan, and there they were. It was like, you know, a picture of the Santana, Bob Dylan, it can't be Bob. There they were. Everywhere I went, uh, there was somebody from the door trying to pass a track, somebody trying to witness to me. They were much bigger than they really were. Why? Because everybody was blowing a trumpet. Can we all agree tonight that reaching a soul is, you can do that 24 hours a day, not only technically on outreach. And one of the things that I pray, oh God, please, please, Don't ever let us get to a point where where our churches are evangelism, but no evangelism. There's no witnessing going on. Not only did they all have trumpets, they all had torches. Each man carried a fire inside his vessel. Now, again, this attack was going to happen at nighttime or at least early in the morning. The Bible says they were each given a a, a lamp with a torch inside of it. And again, the instructions were, you're going to break the the lamp um, and the torch is going to shine. And so not only is it going to be audio, it's going to be visual. 300 torches, again, are going to suggest a much larger force. This is going to be bigger. The 65,000 or however many there were are going to look 
at, at all that light. They're going to hear that sound. And again, they're going to be, the, the Bible says they're going to become convinced uh, that this is something much bigger that's happening. Now, we understand this, and I'm sure you've heard many sermons along what I'm talking about this evening. You know what makes a powerful church? When everybody going to that church has their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I found out something. Churches, church life works better when people are saved inside the church. I have less problems when I have a majority of saved people coming. I don't know. I, 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 you know, over the many years, I've had friends that have gotten bitter and rebelled, and, and they're going to go and they're going to pastor. Uh, some, I, 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 I could never pastor outside of our fellowship. I would die. I already know what I deal with, but I imagine just a bunch of unsaved, carnal people. And the idea is when you have people that have their own relationship with God, when you sit down and you have to referee fights and you have to work through counsel and marriages, when, when, when you're dealing with people that have a fire going on inside of them, you know, where, where there's goodwill, anything can be solved. But when you're dealing with a bunch of unsaved people, I, I met a man years ago, I was flying uh, back home and I, I sat next to a man who was a, a kind of a well-off man and from San Diego and this guy, he was actually... Uh, saved in the very early part of the Jesus People movement there at uh, Chuck Smith's church. And we were talking, but he now is on the board of a very well-known Christian, private uh, Christian high school in uh, the northern part of San Diego County. And he was telling me that when they started this program, it was a bunch of devout Christians, but because their, their academics are so good that Unsafe people are paying pastors to lie and say that they're Christian. And, and he says, so we got all these unsafe people. And he goes, I'm ready to walk away from it all uh, because you cannot sit down with unsafe people and reason and resolve issues. There's no common ground. I want to tell you what, when you have in a church common ground, everybody's saved. And not only are they saved, they got fire on, inside of them. The reality is that a small group of people like that have power. When we contend for that, when we believe God for that, when we need people filled with the Holy Ghost. And let me just say something tonight to all the men here, because I respect that we come from different cities tonight. You matter in your church tonight. You matter. You may think, well, I'm not uh, in this ministry or any, it doesn't matter. You matter. The more people that have a trumpet and have some fire, the better that church is going to be. The third thing is the Bible says they delegated authority. They took 300 and they divided into groups of 100. Now that sounds counterintuitive, don't it? Here you are, you have 300. How do you make 300 appear bigger? Well, in our mind, you certainly don't divide them into 100. You don't make the group smaller to appear bigger, but yet somehow that is the strategy. Our strategy of growth is shrinking our church called sending people out. That is how we grow. How do you grow? How does your church grow? You know how it grows? I take the very best people, the most devoted, dedicated, anointed, fruitful people uh, and their kids, and I send them away so our church can... Are you out of your mind? Yeah, that's how we do it. Can you say amen? 
Our, our strategy is world evangelism. I, and our little church in San Antonio, I want to tell you something, that, that uh, uh, God has helped us and blessed us in church planning. And I told our church the other day, I said, you know what? Had we held on to all these men, they now come back to our conference. They're fruitful pastors. They have impact. Uh, and we think, oh, what, what a church it would be if we still had these men or if we still have those music groups or, or whatever. Uh, but the, I tell them, you know what? First of all, these men would have never become these men if they would have stayed here. This church would have never grown. We would have been stuck. Because you don't grow. By hoarding, you grow by sending, you grow by releasing, by the ability to delegate uh, and to take what we have and to separate it. And through that, my goodness, I'm standing here in Prescott, Arizona. I shouldn't even have to, I should have thrown this whole point out. You all see this. It never happens when we don't send out our sons and daughters. It never happens. A committed church is a launching church. A committed church says, I'm going to send out my best. And when I send out my best, um, then uh, the people that are underneath uh, are going to see that uh, and they're going to be inspired. And guess what? They will rise to the occasion. And the lift will begin to happen so that the one-year-old uh, young man will be say, you know what, in this church I can go somewhere. But it will never happen if we feel like we have to hold on to everything. And we know that God gave them a miracle. I want to close. I'm going to talk to you about staying committed because that's really our challenge tonight. You've seen the quote there are are approximately 100 biographies in the Bible, two-thirds end badly. The natural order of things, go, we go from hot to cold. The natural order is, man, when I was young, I was committed. I was on every outreach. I was doing this. I was in bands or in drama. I did, we did plays. We, we had teams uh, that went to do and, and, and we say all that, but now... Uh, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm older and I've settled down. Now let me say this evening, I don't expect a 50-year-old to have the lifestyle of an 18-year-old. But I want you to see the miracle of this battle. Because when you read the narrative, you find out that this battle begins right off of the hills in the valley outside of Mount Moray. And it took me a while to track these locations down because these places aren't really... Uh, called by these names now. And we know that the story narrative ends around a place called Sukkoth, which is approximately 50 miles away. And so here's Gideon's men. It, it doesn't appear there was any break. They gathered. They bend the window down from 32,000 to 300. The battle is engaged. They fight. Zeba and Zalmanah flee. Uh, Gideon's army pursues them. We know they come to a place called Sukkoth, again, approximately 50 miles away. When they arrive in Sukkoth, guess what the Bible says? It says the men were exhausted. No sleep, no food. They have traveled 50 miles. They are wiped out and they're exhausted. And Gideon asks uh, uh, for some supplies. And the men of Sukkoth, we know, are unwilling to help them because they didn't know the outcome of the battle and, and all of that. 
But what I want to point out to you is that when they did not get any food, they continued on until they finished the battle. That here's the wisdom of God when he selected these 300 men. He selected them because he knew that this is what they would do. That after a, a, a battle, after a, 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 a partial victory, after exhaustion, the whole idea is I've chosen these men. Because you know what? At the end of the day, they're not going to stop their commitment. Because this is who these men are. This is what they're all about. Oh, God, give us men like this. Give us men that are still going to continue to press in, even through the exhaustion and through the doubt and through all the things that go on. They're still going to fight. That is, listen, that doesn't happen with a pep rally. That doesn't happen, you know, uh, with, a, uh, you know, a pat on the back. It was something about this whole process of distilling to these 300 men because he knew these 300 men, this is what they're going to do. It's in these men. These guys understand the issue here is commitment. One day your commitment is going to be challenged. Do you know when you are committed? You are committed when your friend or your relative uh, or, your, or somebody else decides to be uncommitted. And you stay committed. Lot stays committed when Abraham leaves. Ruth is committed when Orpah leaves. The multitude leave Jesus and he turns to his disciples and says, will you also go away? He reserved that question uh, in the context of people around them walking away uh, because that's when you seal your commitment. Because the issue is, can we stay committed? When your friend backslides, I had a guy last night say to me, he's a good young man and God's going to use his life. But he came to me and was mentioning about the brothers that were closest to him and helped him and both backslid. And I know he wanted me to feel sorry for him, but I didn't feel sorry for him. And I told him so. Because commitment is commitment when everybody else is uncommitted. And that's where you make your decision. Tonight, there's a woman in our church, Pastor Mitchell, Pastor Greg, some of the men know her, Doris, consider. Doris got saved in 1985. Here's the story. The story was that Doris was a full-on lesbian. She got radically saved. She ended up marrying a guy that uh, was, used to be a homosexual. So we thought. And then, early on in their marriage, maybe a year or two into their marriage, it became out that this guy had never ended the lifestyle, had contracted AIDS, and had put her in peril. It was so bad, it was such a horrible violation, and I'll go on the record, it's the only time, it was so bad that I said to her, leave this guy, divorce him. This guy could have killed you. She came back to me a couple days later and said, Pastor, I prayed about it. He's got AIDS. He's going to die, and I want to make sure he gets to heaven. So I'm going to stay with him, and I'm going to take care of him and make sure he died 
And she became a widow. But he got saved. And she stayed unmarried in our church for almost 25 years. And she kept saying, I'm going to get married. I'm going to get married. You watch. I'm going to get married. Doris was in her 50s. Doris would have been 53 years old and she got married. I remember her standing in line. It's after church. I'm from the pulpit. And standing in front of her was an eligible bachelor. This guy was around 50 in his 50s. He's an eligible bachelor. There are like 30 ladies praying for him. And uh, he comes... (laughs) And he comes to tell me that he's decided that he would like to date Doris. And I said, hey, bro, she's good. I'm happy for you, you know. And she was standing right by him. She comes up and to tell me they found cancer in my arm. And so she's worried they found cancer. And she's telling me this. But in my mind, she has no idea what's about to happen to her. When he you know, told her he wanted to start dating her. She went to her doctor and said, I can't die. I've got a boyfriend for the first time in 25 years. (laughs) They got married. That cancer spread. She lost half her arm. Then she had to take her whole arm trying to stop the cancer. Then they found the tumors in her lungs. And then three months ago, they found two brain tumors. Uh, And as I'm here tonight, Doris, uh, it's just about home. Just before she died, I went in there to see her. I'd go see her often. And she says, Pastor Ruby, I'm more on fire today than I ever was. And if you knew her, she's on fire. Yolanda and I in there visiting the other day, and a couple of backslidden church kids, all tattooed up, that remembered Doris from growing up, from boot camp. And they went to see her. These guys are in their upper 20s now. They're nice kids. They're backslidden. And they went in, and when they saw her, we kind of left them. We, me and Yolanda kind of walked outside the room. We're talking with her husband. And they're then I hear a noise and I turn and these boys are weeping. These guys are, they're weeping and they're, and, and, I mean, they're, and Doris is weeping. And she's saying, I don't want you guys to go to hell. I don't want you guys to burn in hell. You need to get saved. And they're just crying. She's, and I'm quoting her. She said, the devil's a faggot. And you guys, why are you listening to him? You need to repent. And, 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 and I thought to myself, you know what? I mean, if you're going to go out, man, that's the way to go out. Can you say man? I mean, do we really want to go out having said we used to be committed? So I'll close right here. I was uh, in Zambia preaching the conference uh, last summer with uh, Kevin Foley. And so I had come across a quote, just a, just a couple of lines that I thought were really cool. And uh, so Kevin and I were going to kind of hash out maybe a sermon idea. And I had this, I pulled this out, and I said, hey, Kevin, I found this great quote. And Kevin says, oh, yeah, that's Henry V. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and it was, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but I haven't, I'm not up in all my Shakespeare. But hey, Kevin Philly goes, no, no, that's Henry V, and it's very famous, uh, a quote. And so I remember he got home, and Kevin sent me a bunch of material, and then I started reading up on it. 
And it turned out that this is indeed a very, very famous poem. Some of you are probably familiar with it. From this poem, some of the terms like, uh, 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 you know, that we hear the band of brothers comes from this particular poem. Uh, The uh, marine commercial, uh, the few, comes from this poem. But I want to just leave it with you. Because its popularity is because deep down it, it deals with us. Are we going to be committed or are we not? The backstory is this happened around 600 years ago. In fact, that King Henry V took his army across the English Channel to fight with France. And on St. Crispin's Day... The two armies were going to engage, the French army and Henry V's British army, which was much, much smaller at a place called Agincourt. The British were vastly outnumbered, and the night before the battle, Henry's men came to him and said, men are running away. Not only are we outnumbered, but we are now vastly outnumbered because men are running away. We, they think this is a suicide mission, and we're done. And it's right here, and these are the words, of course, of Shakespeare. But this is what Henry V said. The first part of it's not, it's not on here. Only the second part is, and they'll join in when we're ready. But this is what he says to his men the night before a battle in which they are totally outnumbered. He says, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. He which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispin. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. See, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered for your commitment? Do you want to be able to pull back the sleeve and say, you know what? I was committed. Let's bow our heads. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website, vvph.org, and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people. Thank you.